Welcome, welcome, welcome to Building the Black Educator Pipeline podcast. You have come to the place where we talk to real people in the real struggle doing the real work. I am your host, Shana Terrell, educator activist dedicated to the lifelong struggle of freedom and liberation for my people. Today, we are joined by Dr. Ife Tayo Flannery, assistant professor and chair of undergrad at Temple University for Africology and African American Studies. So she joins us today to talk about the impact of Black studies and Black psychology. Welcome, Dr. Flannery. Welcome. Good to see you. Coming uh, at you from Philadelphia right now. Yes, yes. Listen, Philly is in the house. We have a lot of listeners um, from Philly um, who definitely are um, a part of our co-conspirator network. Um, so one, I want to say I'm excited to be talking to you um, because it is Women's History Month. Mm-hmm. So shout out to all the powerful black women out there. I'm leading the charge on education, leading the charge on young minds. So super, super happy to have you um, be our opening guest for Women's History Month. Well, thank Welcome. you. So one of the things I love to talk to my guests about um, and what our listeners love to know is just tell us a little bit about yourself. Who's Dr. Efectayo? What can you share with us about yourself, your work, um, and who you are? Just some of your past and present. What should we know about you? Well, I am from Atlanta, Georgia, and I would say that, in the, especially with this conversation, one of the most pivotal moments of my life um, was when I entered into African American studies in college. And um, supportive family system, living in a black city, black culture, you would think, you know, you know, heavily socialized in the culture and consciousness, but there's a separation and an entry point into the institutionalization of African-American studies that really transformed my life. I'm an Africology enthusiast. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, that's Ife Tayo. I'm, you know, a, a millennial career professional um, in the community, have been raised by um, some of the, we have quite a few living revolutionaries that also impacted a lot of my thinking uh, around the country. Um, and definitely an advocate for um, Black autonomy, and particularly through the vehicle of Black education. Hmm. Love that. So what inspired you to be an educator? How did you get on that journey? Well, initially, I was thinking I was going to be a therapist, okay? Okay. And that was the road. I had majored in psychology and all this and that. And I didn't know I was going to really end up in education until I was in my master's degree program. And I was looking around and I said, you know, I could become a therapist, but I had to look at my own life and do an inventory of what was the things that had the grandiose impact on me as a black person in America and it was the development of my cultural consciousness and intellectual expansion and I felt like if that's well situated you know you can get I felt like the therapy was an assistant to the major transformation of decolonial consciousness that was number one and I had read of like all the great social movements that said the first thing or maybe the greatest hurdle is not materialism is the consciousness of the people. There is no unity without consciousness. So I felt like it had transformed me. It had made me greater. It had made me confident. And it was something that I could be good at in service. Um, 
that led me into education. I had a lot of great mentors that were like, you know, you you could probably, you know, you might want to keep doing more study, more academia, you know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. I said, you know, let's do this. And uh, for me, it is my destiny. You know, everyone has their own destiny to find their path. But for me, it feels like perfect alignment. So I'm grateful. Yes. And like many of our folks who come on here, it wasn't like a lifelong dream to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really something you fell into and to have people push you into doing that, having people see something in you um, and you becoming a teacher and how that can, again, impact others. Again, I, I always encourage people, when you see young leaders who can be teachers and leaders in our classrooms, continue to push them because your words have impact. Your words have value. Because look at Dr. Flannery right now. Hey. Teaching, okay? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> out here teaching because somebody told you, girl, you, you need to be out here teaching. Right, right. Yes. Right. <laughs> I love that. I really love that. Amazing. So you said something, though, um, that struck me um, when you talked about you have their living Black revolutionaries that you feel like influenced your thought. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about who those folks are? Yeah, definitely. When I started my journey in Atlanta, you know, some of my first teachers, um, still alive, people familiar with Baba AK or Akinyila Umoja, uh, Dr. Wakungu um, Akinyila, Baba Asa Hilliard was alive when, and working at Georgia mm-hmm. State when I was there. And I went, I used to go to the center in my senior and junior year. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I was um, in Philadelphia um, and a lot of exposure in the temple department people coming in and out, Muhammad Ahmed, Anthony Montero, Malefia Sante, Amo Mazama, um, going down the street on Cecil B. Moore, going to the UNIA, be like, yo, what's going down here? <laughs> you know, meetings. And then I lived on um, my former, before I came back to Temple as a faculty, I was in, working at San Francisco State, which is the first Black Studies program in the world that was established through great long protests. And some of those strikers, community people, not just like uh, professionals, they would keep they kept they come to the school every year so i would sit Mm -hmm. down with some of those people who were a part of the 1968 strike you know and they would continue to tell their narrative but also with the black psychology um mentored under baba wade nobles under dr over tashaka and people like that that are still like very very heavy present in the bay area so um a lot of these people had come to shape um my consciousness understanding um and even through readings um people like um ashada shakur which i hadn't had the privilege of meeting her but um reading a lot of her works um reading a lot with uh, angela davis reading a lot of people who took um radical steps of reorientation of our people you know has really informed like what is real to me that's the paradigm mm-hmm. shift. It's not accumulating knowledge, it's shifting what is reality, yes. which shifts what is your perceived strength, weaknesses, possibilities, what is the future, is perception. So when I engage with the histories and the people, the living and the dead, the ancestors, I read them, I read Martin Delaney, I read about Harriet Tubman. We, we, we're constantly you know, in engagement with the circle of, of history and life you know, these things had um, created a paradigm shift mm-hmm. for me. And I think that paradigm shift is more so what I would uh, attribute to 
the mental liberation um, that needs to be acquired to pursue physical liberation of a people. And I, I really appreciate you pointing that out because I think that sometimes we have a lot of conversations around Black liberation and around how to be free. And I think that people don't put enough energy and time into the paradigm shift, into the psyche mm-hmm. of, of Black folks and how that affects everything we do. Like, even again, we talk about racism um, and how racism is a sickness, right? Um, what I talk to people a lot about is like how that's all connected to the psychological being. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why it's so pervasive is because it is a psychological thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so though we as Black people are not necessarily racist, but being receivers of racism. But what that does to your mental and your paradigm shift about who you are, what you can be, and what you can achieve, people like really discount that. I think they only mm-hmm. see liberation. And it's because of how it's somewhat, somewhat how it's marketed to us, Absolutely. but how it, the stories, how the stories are told to us and how it's portrayed to us, right? Yes. People talk about revolution and liberation as if it was an event. Or yes. If it is like a it pop like a thing that happens and then you're on to the next thing next thing the reality is that we're in the revolutionary process now revolutions Mm -hmm. are not just Haitian revolution 1791 and you know to 1803 the revolution started when the people conceived of the idea of rebellion Mm -hmm. the result Mm -hmm. or the end of the revolution is the part that we historicize and that we make to be like these iconic moments that we study we are in revolutionary process now, and there is no revolutionary if it doesn't exist in the mind. There is no revolutionary, yes. there is no revolution, there is no change without persistence. And you know what? People always say that change is constant, and I'm not exactly a believer of that. I think that's a little bit of, um, it delays action. Because if you accept this uh, philosophical idea that, well, change is inevitable, then what is your role? And change. Mm. Change is actually very hard. If you study human behavior, societies, cultures, anything that is institutionalized, that is in repetition, is very hard to change. If you can't hardly change your diet or like getting up on time, how is changing a society just a matter of going to war? It's not. Yes. Change is hard. It takes intentionality and it takes not just defeating something that is bad, but being a creator of what will replace a system that is maladaptive to a people. This is where some of the holes in education exist. We're very good at deconstruction. We're very good at criticizing. We're very good at identifying a problem. That's what Western education affords you. What it doesn't afford you is, well, what is the solution? What is the alternative? What does life look like when I'm not a captive? of Western society. What culture would I be practicing? How would my culture change? How would my values change? If I am an aligned African, if I am standing upright as a black person, if I am a fully developed and fully actualized. And so it's not just enough to say like, look at models of success because that's one aspect, you know, financial success or reward, but really to the construction of the alternative is what is at our feet. The reparations conversation is a part of this huge contribution to this conversation. What do we become on the other side? This is something that education, Black education, needs to focus on as well. I think it's the beginning stages to say, 
we have bad education. We established that. Yep. Bargy Woodson established that in 1933. Education is bad. Right. Even at the tier, top tier levels, he went to Harvard University. What does good education look like? This is our task. Yes. Dr. Flinnery, this is why I love that you use the word paradigm shift at the beginning of all of this. Because I think that we do set ourselves up in this very good versus evil battle in our minds. Um, but not understanding that, imagining what we could be or should be, and not necessarily everything having having to be the rebellion against something else. Absolutely. So when you talk about reparations and, and what are we on the other side of that, I think that's a huge conversation because I think the conversation, of course, it should start with, okay, we are deserving of it. We need it, right? Yes. But then do we have the education, the stability, the mental health that if we are afforded reparations, what do we do next? Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. First of all, reparations for me, and there's so many long-term conversations that have been happening um, around this. So it's not just like my idea at all. Mm -hmm. But for me, reparations um, starts with the individual and it moves out. It's the individual, then the family then the community, then the institutions and the nation, and then as far out as it can go. Why did I say start with the individual? Because I'm going to be consistent in what I tell you. I'm going to tell you no lie now. If I <laughs> told you that mental clarity, paradigm shift in oneself changes your perception of reality, that's reparations number one. Because what are we doing? What does reparations mean? It means to repair what has been lost, distorted, damaged, or taken completely away. You mm -hmm. have to repair your sense of self and your vision of yourself and the world, what it is, it, what it is that is true or not true. Mm. And then it moves outward, right? The family is the first institution in any community, any black nationalist knows this. UK, if you don't have the repair of the family, just getting a check or moving to another location or repatriating, you will still live a life of misery if you have no connectedness. That's the African culture has told us that the number one thing is your own lineage, your own ethnic group, but your own family, your bloodline. You have to repair mm -hmm. this. After slavery, what did Black people ask for? A lot of us don't know. What was the first thing that we asked for? It was two major things, and it wasn't jobs. The two major things that Black people asked the government for after 1865 was to find their relatives and for formal education. Those are the two main things Black people advocated for. White people have never advocated as hard as we have for those things. Okay. And so finding your family, repairing your family is reparations. Repairing your own mind is reparations. It is the restoration of who you are in this world and destiny. Every time the family is repaired, everything else can blossom. The schools, the businesses, the collaborations. People talk about Black economics, but if I don't trust you, ain't no Black economics. All of these things are associated with value systems. Value systems are developed and impression upon us where? In the house. in the house. So it's very difficult to say, this is what the community needs. We need to trust more. We need to work together more. We need to do this. If we haven't repaired the value systems at the developmental stages within the family structure, I'm not going to become 19 years old. And <laughs> I could, but it's a longer process now that I'm 21 to change my whole value system to adjust to a more, you know, uh, black friendly uh, approach to engagement. That needs to start early. Mm -hmm. Reparations is not just the financial aspect. 
It is the restoration and the, and the recovery. It is rescuing yourself from demise and from being deleted from human history. That starts mm -hmm. in the mind and it goes out to the family, it goes out to the community, it goes out to the institution. Once you have rescued your mind, then you are capable of making good decisions with money. You will not give money to a fool and ask them to build a community. Mm -hmm. So reparations, number one, is not codependent on whether Europeans or Westerners or America is going to give us our due. Because as that is very important to rescue ourselves is the number one thing that is required for reparations to be established and sustained. People talk about, Malcolm X always taught us, people talk about um, self-autonomy, self-reliance. And in that, you have control. That's the point. What's the psychological, what is the significance of having independent businesses or independent institutions? Why? Well, when you extract the control, then you have control of the design and the outcome. Yes. And so you need control of your mind, of your spiritual practice, of your family, of your values, of your perception of reality. And all of the things can come into alignment. You cannot fight for the money that we are owed, if you do not know what is owed to you, if you do not know what has been lost, we have not done a full inventory of what has happened to us. Reparations is not just about labor. People don't know what their original tongue was. They don't know their, their where their mother came from. You don't know what religion you practice. If you don't know, you know, a lot of people are doing more investigation with the ancestry and the DNA, which is very good. But if you don't know your name, if you don't know your language, if you don't know who to pray to, that's mm. more fundamental than getting a couple of dollars. This is what is significantly has been distorted and lost. You have lost your mind, okay? <laughs> and that is more important to recover your soul, your ancestry, your mind, and your value system, your culture that will build the infrastructure, that will provide the, the wealth and the vision for the wealth, that is important to recover. We must not forget this in the conversation of reparations. Listen, y'all, Dr. Victoria said, I'm coming with a word today, okay? <laughs> I'm coming with a word today, all right? Listen, again, just the, the way um, the way that you are, 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 are crafting this is super important. And to tie it into a lot of the things that we talk about on this show, um, this is why I give teachers major shout outs. Um, and why I say it, it's one of the most important jobs and why we need more black teachers. Um, teachers have the ability to control the minds of the future. That is exactly what they have the ability to do. When you are in charge of teaching a young person for a young person's learning, what they think about themselves, how they think about the world, how they think about the community, that's a huge job. And we talk all the time about education being, of course, right? It's nothing but American um, indoctrination. But at the level that you're at, um, if we can have people that are going into the classroom who have paradigm shifts, who understand critical consciousness, who are then being in front of the future of young people and to pass that on to young people understanding who they are, their place in themselves in the world, how powerful um, that could be for for America, how powerful that could be for Black people um, to have that. But always talk about the importance. Like you literally have the future in your hands because you're holding their minds in your hand. Mm -hmm. What you teach them is super, super important, which is why 
I mean, educators to me, one of the most, one of the most important roles um, to play in our, our modern society for sure. One of the questions I, I wanted to get answered, because I think, again, <laughs> unless you're living in this world, um, in the world that, that you're in, people don't understand a lot of the terms. Can you tell us what is the difference between Africology and African-American studies? Okay, yes. Boom. Perfect. I'm glad you asked that question. They're all interrelated. There's many names that appear depending on the department you're in, what region of the country you're in. We have a lot of nomenclature in the field. Right? We started out as Black studies, then most departments transitioned to African-American studies, and then you see the proliferation of African diaspora, African and African diaspora studies. You see some Pan-African studies departments, and what we have at Temple, and I believe at Wisconsin-Madison is Africology. The, the subtle differences, um, by and large, Africology is the intentional application of an African-centered approach or Afrocentric approach in the interpretation of any and all phenomenon that is of people of African descent. So that's the slight deviation because you can do African-American studies and you could be a variety of things. You could be Black-centric, you could be like anti-racist, you could be feminine, you could be not dealing with race at all. You could just say we're just human beings. And that can still sort of categorically be under African-American studies, which is more of the catch-all of the work that is happening in the field. So we have the intentional, like, well, we want the Afrocentric study of African people is just to say that we're not going to divide the diaspora from Africa. That's the very simple thing. It means that every time we study somebody in Newark or North Philly or somebody in Atlanta, we understand that they're a part of a continuum as an African person and they're connected to world history. Mm. So that's the main difference. And then I'm going to throw one more at you. People probably also hear Africana. Oh, yes. Africana is a way that a lot of us in the field have come to sort of bridge Africa and the diaspora together. That's all the extra A on African means is also the diaspora. So that's most the most agreed term to as like the future of a lot of the programs to transition from African-American, which is American-centric to Africana, which means that we're going to embrace the worldwide experience of people of African descent, whether they're in the Caribbean or the continent or America. Perfect. And I wanted to like really get clear on that because again, unless you live in the world, especially the world of academia, people don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't understand. Like Africology, Africana, African. What? What? Right. What is this? All something different? Is it the same? And like you said, it does depend on what you um institution that you go to. Mm-hmm. Um, depends on what they're teaching. Um, when I went to Temple University, um, it was just African American studies. Mm-hmm. It wasn't Africology yet. And you mentioned one of my professors. Um, shout out to Doctor Anthony Montero. Okay. okay. Um, one of my professors um at Temple back in the day taught me how to um channel my revolutionary energy in, in a less aggressive way um, <laughs> shout out shout out uh to dr montero um you talked a little bit in the beginning about how your perspective changed once you infer- entered you know africana studies or, or, or black studies can you talk a little bit about your perspective and like how your perspective on the world or your view of yourself changed by getting introduced to um africana studies Yes, I'll never forget, you know, I was in Atlanta, I was going to Georgia State University, 
And I don't think it's a coincidence. Like I was a biology and psychology. I was a biology major, right? But even in these systems, you know, you have to take this and this and this and elective here and there. And I had this black lady who was my counselor. I didn't know nothing. I was about 18, 19. And she said, you know, why don't you take intro to African-American studies as your humanities elective? And I was in biology, so I would have never had no introduction, no nothing in that department if it wasn't for that lady. So I said, sure. Okay. And I ended up in that class and it really, really was the beginning of the next phase of my life. What was so impactful is that in some ways, and it makes sense from a child to adulthood, you fed a consistent amount of information. Some of it is in contradiction, of course, but it's so consistent that even when things are in contradiction, we tend to accept it because the mind prefers things in repetition. The mind doesn't have to make sense. That's that's a hurdle. So I was like, oh, this will be more of what I already know. And in most situations in education, the idea is that you're building on what you already know. Education is not designed to change what you know. I get into intro to African-American studies at Georgia State University, taught by a woman who actually was, got her PhD from Temple. I didn't know that then. Mm-hmm. In Black studies, African-American studies. And it fundamentally changed my assumptions about everything that I knew. So that was very riveting, very scary, very charging, empowering all at the same time. Good thing that classes happen with other people. So you have community as you go through these riveting changes. I remember some of the first things that I learned that I had never considered was that, um, you know, um, that the first civilization ever was black, that we're still learning that we're still adopting, have adopted, adapted, that we still cannot figure out all of what our earliest ancestors had developed. So how developed are we? Of learning that even the first of um, explorers, mathematicians, the people who created language and religion and philosophy itself, the people who created the first psychology, and not just at the beginning of civilization, but through periods of time, you know, a lot of times we study that ancient Greek and Romans are basically the watershed, the foundation of civilization, but they're the last civilization in the period of what we could call ancient. That was riveting for me. And they told me stuff like, why do you go to a museum? And when they show ancient Egypt, it's isolated. It's not seen as like an African country. It's like its own thing that, oh, this is all human beings have access to this, but they never put it in Africa. Why the separation? And then we jump all the way to ancient Greek and Rome to inform all of our political philosophy, language, religion, culture, beliefs, you know, and everything. You know, the actual, that's not even chronological. So to, mm-hmm. to engage with world history was changing. Then even at the African-American level, I felt more confident because there is these weird ways that we understand who we are, that there was slavery down there with civil rights and then there's today. It's like very, very, very like reductionist. And no one had presented the question of like, what were you doing before slavery? Mm. And so I got into African-American studies as a black person, as an African person. And you know, the idea that you cannot measure progress based off comparing everything we're doing now to slavery because that's the bottom. 
you have to measure freedom based off who you were as a free person. It's also a very, very paradigmatic shift. So then I have to study who were we as a free person before I talk about, oh, freedom, you know, progress, you know, I'm doing well compared to what? I'm doing well compared to what? If all you do is compare your progress to slavery, you are really comparing yourself to zero almost. Mm -hmm. And that is not a great comparison. That is not an achievement. Mm -hmm. Even when we look at, you know, the stages of progression in society, everybody always want to tell you was well, better than say it's better than it was. But what was it before that? <laughs> okay. Right. It ain't better than having a whole kingdom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Facts so, and truth. Yes. so when I was able to detach from whiteness, really, a white society as the barometer yes. of everything that is black and able to reattach that I should be comparing myself to myself, to my own ancestors, to African civilizations, to African progress, to the development that we see in the Caribbean or where else. It is a whole nother perception of the world, what is real, what is good, and what is bad. Hmm. There's a value system change. And that's a very huge paradigmatic shift. To save yourself, you have to kill that thing in your mind that has told you that your existence is something that is um, predicated on what someone gives you or the only, or is only predicated on what you have experienced in this life. Yes, 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 yes. Everything yes about that. That you your experience is predicated on what somebody allows you to have, what somebody gives you, on um, what somebody tells you that you're you're better off this way. We you lucky. You lucky um, you here. <laughs> yes. That's yes. mentality. You lucky you here. You should be so happy there's one president or one Supreme Court justice. Look how look at what you've done. Paradigm shift in African American studies said. That's not that good. And in fact, black people have been capable of this. So that's progress for you. You yes. are now willing to accept a president or a Supreme Court justice as black. That's actually your achievement. That has nothing to do with me. We've been prepared to do this. So everything has been flipped on us. Everything is inverted. That you're doing mm -hmm. so good. No, you are struggling with your ethical progress, moral progress, structural progress, and how to integrate the people that you stole. Child, the fact that that paradigm shift would be thinking about black assimilation is more of an achievement for white people <laughs> than it is for black people, yeah. right? Like people wouldn't look at it that way, yes. um, but you're absolutely right. When we're looking at results, when you're looking at outcomes and you're looking at how many U.S. presidents we've had um, over the years and you can say less than 1% or 1% have been black, that is not an achievement, right? That isn't something to be proud of. But we also have the struggle to say, well, does that mean we don't celebrate um, Barack Obama? No, I think you celebrate that brother's achievement, but you don't take that success and count that as an achievement for all when you look at the progress of who we are as Black people as a society. Um, and I think, again, that is hard, right? It's hard to think about that. That's hard to do that. Um, some of the work we do here um, at the Center for Black Educator Development, when we're put into perspective about Brown versus Board of Education mm -hmm. and how it's celebrated as a win. It was not a win. Uh, when you look at how it has set Black people back, um, when you talk about 
so-called integration. And when you talk specifically about the Black teacher pipeline and how many Black people lost their jobs, and then how many Black children were turned over to be taught by the enemy in a number of ways, whether that's busing them uh, to schools where they weren't loved, where they weren't nurtured, um, where they weren't liked and their minds weren't going to be nurtured, or that was white teachers coming in to infiltrate our spaces um, because a white person would never dare um, to let anybody Black teach their children. Um, but we were forced in many ways to have white people teach our children. So again, but when you assess that and you look at that um, from a different, as you say, paradigm shift of, you know, like we didn't overcome. And again, you, you it's a hard thing to wrestle with because what you don't want to do is discount the struggle and the sacrifice of the many who fought for these rights. You want to be respectful um, to our ancestors um, and our revolutionaries who presented the spirit and the power of resistance. But in the same way, you have to grapple with the reality of what it really is, mm -hmm. and what is really happening in the setback mm -hmm. or the changes that just haven't happened um, for Black Americans. Yeah. And I think, you know, with Brown v. Board, a lot of people didn't know what was going to happen. A lot of people didn't think we was going to get it. I don't discount the people who have strategized and put a lot of effort into that because this was largely a social human experiment, right? Mm -hmm. America had no mm -hmm. history of integrated education. So mm -hmm. a lot of it was hypothesized. And we know that at the time that people were struggling for what has been called not actually integration, but desegregation okay, was mm -hmm. because of the black schools and the, the faculty and the students were overtaxed and underpaid. And, you know, mainly, you know, the desegregation project was not particularly interested in white teachers. They were interested in federal support. Well, yeah. that's why they went to change the federal constitutional law. Mm -hmm. That didn't go as planned, particularly. But I don't know if anyone could have foresaw everything that was going to happen, the backlash of basically the resegregation, you know, of schools or the replacement of black teachers with white, uh, you know, teachers. And we didn't know. I don't think we knew because I, I don't think that's what we asked for, right? right so we right, right. about that. We, Of course, we didn't know because it's not what we asked y'all to do. What we asked for. <laughs> <laughs> We're thinking like, you know, we're fighting a battle. We're, we're very clear on what our intentions are. We're very clear on what our needs are. Mm -hmm. um, so all these things that are coming as a result of this, we didn't ask for none of this. This is not what we were asking for mm -hmm. whatsoever. So I agree. I don't think people hypothesize it because I don't think that they were thinking about this being the, the outcome. The, the outcome. Well, you hate us so much. Why would you want <laughs> to come teach us, right? Like nobody exactly. ever think. Like you exactly. hate us so much. You don't want to be around. Why would you want to come in here and teach us? We just asked for equal money. That's it. We right. were teaching in our own communities. Right. So I definitely don't think that um, that was thought about. People wanted um, equal treatment under the law. Law. That yes. means fair wages, facilities, right? You know, yes. and, and if I want to go to a white school access, if I can, I get a scholarship up in here. You feel me? So mm -hmm. these are the more fundamental human rights that were advocated for with Brown v. Board. So I think it was. Uh, very advantageous and that you know it was uh, a moment um that was probably necessary now mm -hmm. of course on the aftermath people are not going to just say yes sure of course you're right there's a lot of especially under the reagan era the resegregation 
of schools and 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 obviously we're back to the underfunding the overtax the limited resources that we had a lot during um the segregated era you know and so people are starting to question what would be the new strategy you know mm-hmm. do we just homeschool do we have independent schools charter schools we tried desegregation and basically we got resegregation Yes. And in fact, um, our schools are um, highly segregated in this country in the 2023, you know, Very um, getting closer and closer to 100 years since Brown v. Board. Um, and so obviously there is some resistance, okay, to integrated education. And we see a flaring of this with the whole, like, no anti-woke and anti-critical race theory and anti-African-American studies. You know, and but the difference here is before it was like we don't, you know, think about the fifties. Want our kids around black kids? We don't want them socialized together. But Mm -hmm. I think if you're being very perceptive now, the white uh, radical right backlash to the woke education, liberalism, and all that is not actually about black people. They don't want their white kids to be socialized with these ideas, whether there's a black person in the classroom or not. Or not. So it's very much more conceptual, it's ideological, more so than like, I don't want my kids to date a black girl or black, you know what I mean? That's very personal. It's ideological. I don't want my white kid to learn about this. I don't want my white kids to hate themselves or their history or to reconstruct and have their own paradigm shift. Yes, I was just, exactly what I was going to say. It's at some point it's not even about the self hatred, because um, I know white people who love themselves, um, but understand, you know, the truth and the facts of what this country is about. So I, they are most definitely afraid of the paradigm shift that um, this impact could have mm-hmm. on their child. So I want I'm going to get back to the resistance to that in this country, but I would love to explore. If we consistently ex, um, explore Africana studies, Black studies, and K-12 education, what kind of impact do you think that could have um, for, for our children, especially Black children um, and Black teachers specifically? It is immeasurable. If mm. everyone had access to Black studies education, I don't want to break mm. this down because some people think that Black studies is just Black history. So that was my. It's gonna be my follow up. You can answer that off. Answer that off top, and then go into the possibilities. Can you talk about what? What is the difference between the two? Right. First of all, what is black studies? Black studies is a radical shift mm-hmm. from the indoctrination of Western civilization and society, and is a shift into understanding the world through an African worldview and historical framework. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally. So that has to do with everything, mathematics, philosophy, time, religion, language. That is not just like, well, now I know about, you know, Carter G. Woodson and Frederick Douglass. That's important, mm-hmm. but that's not a paradigm shift. Because remember we talked about there's certain things where people want you, allow you to build on what you know but not necessarily change how you approach knowledge itself. What yes. we're doing in Africana studies, African-American studies, Black studies, Africology, is an attempt to completely, not all departments, but mostly the project is to radically shift from the idea of 
white Western education to a fundamentally different approach to knowledge itself. Okay. Mm -hmm. To replace all, you know, the inconsistencies, the omissions in history, not just with like, oh, look, a black person did it, but fundamentally the way we even understand, you know, the concepts of anything, whether that's time, money, business, fundamentally what what has really been successful and important to us and what have people done? What has victory looked like for people like you? What has what does a burial look like for a person like you? What is a right to passage? You know, what is destiny? What is the most important thing that people had always done when a child was born? What is most important for human development? What does actualization mean from an African perspective? What type of language is most important to come into clarity? What does meditation mean to an African person? Because it doesn't, what we have been taught that is the biggest fallacy beyond just like white supremacy is the idea of universalism. That we can study, the idea that we can just study, you know, Europe and that that is world history is false. The idea that everyone meditates the same or that they approach understanding the same is false. The idea that people use writing to do the same things is false. That's the biggest lie. Number one is the idea of universalism. So mm -hmm. once you can break away from that, that's a paradigm shift. And you mm -hmm. need to start asking, not just like, how do I write and read? But how did my people use writing and reading and why did we do it? Mm -hmm. Then that's also shifting power relationships, not just understanding. Because you're never going to be a strong person. And Marcus Garvey taught us this. You're never going to be a strong person. A lot of the black psychologists taught us this. If you are practicing someone else's culture, you're not going to be better than someone else at their own design. A culture is a design that is made for a particular group of people to be their best self. What we have been doing a lot of times in the West is that we are inculcated and we adopt a foreign culture. And then we try to strive to be great in someone else's design for their people. How do you access power is to be aligned with your own design, that blueprint for your for your people, your understanding of life itself, and to approach that in confidence. This is the design that was made for me to excel. We often talk about in conversations about education. Oh, this is made for us to go to jail. This is made for us to fail. Well, stop doing it. Right? <laughs> How do I access the thing? You don't have to start from scratch. We have thousands of years of history. You don't need to build something from nothing. You know the design you're in is designed for you to fail. We say it all the time. But what people lack is like, what direction is the design for me? And instead of keep trying to fight at someone else's design, you study your own people, your own ethnic group, your own culture and history, and the design for life is there. This makes one not just smarter, this makes one more confident. And Marcus Garvey said that confidence is 50% of victory. If you ain't, if you got confidence, you 50% towards winning. Mm -hmm. That's a paradigm shift. This is what black studies is. It's not another African-American, it's not another African-American historical course about who made the first pencil or something like that. <laughs> I'm sorry for giggling, but this is why I wanted to highlight and ask that question because I think African-American history is important to a degree, right? For children to understand and, and know their history. But I think when people have a deeper understanding of what black studies actually is, mm -hmm. and you put it into words, the paradigm shift, right? 
and how that should be a, a part of what happens um, in K-12 education. Because very much um, like you, when I went to Temple and I took African-American studies courses, it's like, it's an awakening, right? Like it's an enlightening um, in a lot of respects. Uh, my involvement for years uh, with the Freedom Schools movement and studying under uh, my baba, Dr. Greg Carr, mm-hmm. again, the enlightenment mm-hmm. of like, again, the paradigm shift that I have about who I am in the world, which is why I show up in a lot of spaces. And again, you know, as a black woman, a powerful black woman who has a paradigm shift, the words that are used about us, <laughs> right? Like I'm aggressive, I'm intimidating. No, I'm assertive because I know who I am, right? And I don't have to beg and and plea uh, for your respect. Um, I don't have to earn it either because mm-hmm. you walk in rooms and don't have to earn anything from me. Right. Um, so it's 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 a given. I'm a person just like you're a person. I'm a human just like you're a human. Um, but again, understanding that respect of who I am in the world and understanding what it means also to be connected as African people. I didn't get that in K-12. No. I didn't get that. <laughs> not get that in, in the African-American histories course. Um, but so in a lot of times people don't have the the words or the or the paradigm shift to put it into words. So when they say things like, our young people need to understand that they were kings and queens. Teaching them that from historical perspective is one thing, but helping them understand how to be that and that's still connected to who they are and how they should walk this earth is completely different. You're not going to get that connection in African-American history, but you will get that in Black studies. Mm-hmm. Because there's a way in which history can be taught even whatever people can call black history, that is not liberating. Let's just say that. Not all, mm-hmm. people say knowledge is power. I disagree. Not all knowledge is power because that's what miseducation is about. That's disempowerment. Mm-hmm. Miseducation is disempowerment. You can know more mm-hmm. and be worse off. That is a fact. Yes. So mm-hmm. the right education is empowering. There's a way in which black history um, can be taught by black or white people or anybody and still be inferiorizing the person and not move you into a paradigm shift. That's why I'm focusing on paradigm shift, cultural shift, breaking away from the idea of universalism, breaking away from the idea that everything is just about black and whiteness. We preceded whiteness in history, time, culture, and language. There's more to experience in the world. There's more understanding to access. And so when you break away from the idea that we're just competing with white people and you realize that there's a whole world of information and existence beyond the racial um, prison, um, then we start to remove the terms of engagement. Yes, This is where the liberation part of the paradigm shift comes. If I realize that actually there are multiple, the earth and the universe is dynamic. There are multiple things happening simultaneously and there's multiple ways that our people have access, understanding, power, progress, whatever it is, in uh, actualization, and that everything is not just being like or better than white people. That's very mm-hmm. narrow. And there's a way in which African-American history has been taught where you do not study black people without white people. This is a problem. This is how you know you could be on slippery slopes of inferior inferiorization, even with a black teacher. Every time you study Black people in most African-American history classes, you're also studying white people. 
black people in slavery, black people rebelling against white people, white people doing this to you, you doing this back. The prison of race is basically that you cannot exist without whiteness. And that prison also exists for white people. So when we do a paradigm shift and we start looking at culture, we start looking at history and civilization, um, we start looking at philosophy, we're taking away that constraint that I am only in existence, even if it's in resistance too, I am only in existence so far as whiteness also exists or exists with me. That is a yes. very dangerous way to perceive reality. And that, but that's the psyche of the Black American, and, right? and that's like how most African American history is taught. Everything is in relationship to whiteness or to whiteness. society. You cannot escape it. How can you imagine freedom? You've never had it, and never knew, right? That you, as a people, have lived in a space without whiteness. Mm-hmm. So people struggle with that, and I always use the term like this: "All my life, I had to fight." If your history, right, from the time you're discuss- discussing history in this country is a fight and a rebellion, you continue on that legacy almost, right? And we're taught to continue that legacy. Like, that's the other thing, That's what you're proud of, that I fight, that I struggle, that I resist. But you never actually exterminated that oppression in your mind, even with the most animated sense of resistance. Mm -hmm. The relationship of what is great about you is always in relationship to what is oppressing you. The paradigm shift is I can exist without that. Mm. And I think that if you live in America, some people will be like, well, how do I escape it? <laughs> because of what I exist under, right? Like white people are here um, and they're oppressive. Um, so how do I imagine my existence without the oppression of whiteness if that's what I continue to exist under? Um, I would imagine that's what some people would say, but then I would imagine, right? Um, when I look at the life and times of, of Malcolm X mm. and black nationalists uh, or some people who consider themselves to be separatists, you create a world without it. Meaning it's here, but it's not your primary source to fight against. And you don't center whiteness in right. what you do. It's, yeah. It's like, not about like exterminating white people or ideas. Mm-hmm. Apricology specifically is about decentering. So you said it exactly on the head, whiteness. Yes. To center yourself as the dominant narrative, paradigm, reality, and everything else is just a part of the dynamism of society. The university can be changed or, or whatever. Yes. Um, and so that's number one, the centering of our own values, of what we want, of our own power, and of our own understanding of ourselves. And that automatically starts to change your experience of power, your experience of what is possible. Absolutely. You understand in the in the Yoruba tradition in Nigeria, which I study a lot, um, they describe that heaven is home and that earth is a marketplace. That's how earth is described in terms of what are we doing when we visit earth in the lifetime that we have. Mm. It doesn't mean that there's no challenges, but it's a place you come, you trade, you deal, you learn, you grow, you have some challenges you overcome. The centering is not devastation, it's not death. The centering is not being in perpetual warfare. That's actually abnormal to how African people had conceived of what the meaning of life is or how God constructed the earth. Yes. So when you center catastrophe, when you center your enemy, 
It's going to drain your energy and your potentiality. You have to center yourself in what, what we want and what we deserve. And I think that is the beginning. It doesn't mean that racism goes away, but that you may have less anxiety. You may have longer life when you center that as the primary thing that you're dealing with every day. Yes. And you now have to focus on yourself, your progression towards freedom and towards liberation instead of this fight that's always in contrast or against this thing. You decenter that. And I think that, that yeah. that's important. Um, there are definitely, that. you know, power, in, life is energy, you know, and, you know, energy is neither created nor destroyed. We have this energy. We are alive. We are alive. Whatever you put energy into, whether that's good or bad, is going to grow. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, and, you know, it is some people live in very dire circumstances where their energy is constantly survival. That's real. Yes, that is real. And for some of us, especially in America, you know, uh, a lot of the energy is psychological energy. You know, when we start talking about stereotypes or fear of the police. Most of it is in the mind before it manifests. Yes. And um, what happens is wherever you start to really put your energy into every day, no matter what it is, even if it's bad, it's going to grow and it's going to dominate your life. And so it's not to say that we're not paying attention to the realities of anything else, but it's that there should be a balance. You know, there should be alternative things that you are investing in, in terms of your own culture and pursuit of knowledge that is actually for prosperity of black people yes. for freedom of black people for the engagement of building i made that critique that a lot of what has happened in our schools is a focus on critique and deconstruction very little attention has been on construction and construction to center and to center us that's right um and this all just listening to this this ties into again what you do and that's black psychology so when you think about the in- energy um, of where you place things, um, what you think about, what you're fed, what you do, all of that affects the psychology of the mind. So if you do constantly feel like you're at war, like mentally, yes. um, the other thing I was thinking about as you were talking, like it's psychologically, I'm not centering myself and I'm always focusing on how to stop you or change your behavior. Right. Then mentally, right. What am I becoming? Uh, how does that then affect me towards prosperity and liberation? My liberation thoughts can't always be focused on how to stop white people from doing something, mm-hmm. <laughs> how to change white people from doing something. No, it's I have to change my thoughts on how to then change this to the progression of what I could be doing to further a cause for black folks Absolutely. Um, and liberation for black people. But it's really powerful. Again, I, I said at the top of the show, I don't think people connect those two, two ideas. Um, and how the mind is so powerful in the resistance um, or the liberation or the freedom work that we do. It starts there, um, as to what you said, for sure. Um, definitely, I would love for you, before we um, wrap up, just to talk about some of your Black psychology research and what have you which, what have you highlighted about it in terms of like mental health and healthy ways we can discuss this as a community. Yes, I love the Black psychology work you know, that has been expanded, especially since 1968. It was born at the same time as Black Studies, and it's always been in parallel and working in tandem with the same concepts and ideas. Um, 
liberation black psychology there's many um sort of variations there's like traditional black psychology assimilationist and more like radical or uh, liberation psychology that one had my attention a lot these are the people that we tend to name a lot like Asa Hillier, Naeem Akbar, um, you know, remember I need Linda James Myers, Wade Nobles, Kobe Cambon, these are the people in the liberation psychology camp. Amos Wilson, one of my favorite, wow. The book I have on black psychology is really to bring together the works, it's a uh, edited anthology to bring together works in an organized way of some of the things that have been out there so that people have like an actual direction moving through concepts and ideas. You know, um, uh, a lot of times when people think about psychology, they only focus on race, racial identity formation. Mm -hmm. Whether that's like, you know, um, how people feel about themselves, self-esteem, self-efficacy, the, um, or even mal maladies like depression, anxiety, but it's always sort of in relationship to racial formation or racial identity. But actually, what there's a lot in Black psychology, just like I'm saying, there's a lot in Black studies that has to do with some more other fundamental things. And I love the attention that's made to nation building in Black psychology. Amos Wilson talks, he wrote a huge book this big when he was alive called Black Power. But he was a Black psychologist, you know, he was not, and he was not in the Panthers. This is a whole nother thing. And his vehicle to Black Power was all of this deconstruction of psychological warfare and psychological colonialism. Because what we do when we start to study behavior is that we know that as an animal, we're animal species or whatever, we're social species, that most people, just like animals, they're going to become adaptive to their environment, even if it is toxic, even if it is to their demise. Mm -hmm. Animals are designed to adapt to environment. So what he did, and what a lot of Black liberation psychologists did, is that they stopped studying just the individual, which is Western psychology, like, let's have a one-on-one -on -one session, let's talk about you, let's see what's in your mind, it's individualized. And it's broadened the scope to say that we cannot really understand or even even adjust the individual without studying the community. And so mm -hmm. black psychology takes that very black studies approach and moving away from just like individual trauma, therapy, whatever, and looking at what is the environment that this person is socialized into and how do we change environments, which basically became how do we alter the culture? Black mm -hmm. psychology, like black studies has a lot to do with like cultural norms and identifying good and bad things that are in repetition in the culture that basically shape the individual so that we have a different approach like Black studies to healing, to wellness, and to understanding of the mind. Our mind is not absent of everything around us. We're not even born as a blank slate that was never believed in any African society that you're born as a blank slate. You come here with mm. an animated personality and certain things that you're destined to do and your environment can help to shape this for better or for worse. And black psychology, the liberation of black psychology really, really encourages people for wellness to begin to itemize and to take a really close look at the things that you're doing every day and why It'd be a good activity to do to catalog because a lot of times your perception is deceptive. Your perception can be deceptive. People will say, mm -hmm. I am an artist. 
I am smart. I am funny. How? <laughs> a lot of times people will say a lot of things about themselves, but these are more aspirational. If I say I'm an artist, but then I clock my time and what I did for a week, and I only spent three hours on art this week, am I an artist? I'm an artist. Yes. So that we need to push towards clarity and understanding, but also in terms of cultural values, there's some things that are like um, categorically maybe understood to be, oh, that's black. That mm -hmm. don't mean it's good. Yeah. Right? So the black psychologists a lot of times have spent time with teasing out things that have been adapted that are not good, that become defunctory for your individual life and your family. And also doing that work of what I said of replacing it of this is some things we have done before that work better. There needs to be a teasing out. Psychology is not just about going from like having like diagnoses to not having diagnoses. Your psychology is how you conceive of reality. And when we're dealing with black people and we're dealing with the liberation struggle and we're dealing with what is in front of us, we know that your psychology has a lot to do with your colonial education. Your psychology has a lot to do with the deprivated environments and the um, under-regulated housing situations that people live in. Your environment has a lot to do with the persistent terror that people have to live under, you know, and, and, and even the lack of nutrition. And we mm -hmm. know that food is directly related to your hormone levels, to your brain balance. You know, some of the things we have, we can get rid of simply by changing our diet. So we want to, Black psychology is doing more than just talk therapy. It's going deep off into society, into the culture to shape not just the individual, but the social environment that, that an individual lives in that can either reinforce or become an enemy to your own progress. Yes, I love this. And you kind of grazed over this, but I'm going to say this um, for our listeners. So um Dr. Ife Tayo has a book. It's called An Introduction to Black Psychology. Um, so if you want to check it out, a lot of the things that she's speaking about um, is, is inside her book. But the, the connection I want to make to everything she just said is when we talk about Black psychology, it starts with self. Um, and it starts with the repair of you, your mindset, and your paradigm shift. And that's how we get to what we want to do as far as nation building. Um, but the exploration of who you are and what makes you think the way you think, behave the way you, you behave, isn't just an assessment or um, a, a condemnation of you. It has to do with the environment and the things that are around you um, and the things that are experiencing you, that you're experiencing. And I think that's important to point out for Black folks mm -hmm. um, because a lot of times, like you say, Western or European, your, your eccentric ways of thinking is like you, you're a problem. Right. Like it's your fault, which again, is which is why I think Black people in our communities are so resistant to therapy and things like that because it says, I'm crazy. I'm the problem. There's something wrong with me. Black psychology helps you explore all of this outwardly. It's not about you per se. It's about your environment. It's about the things you're exposed to. It's about your culture. Mm -hmm. It's about the habits, all the things that make you, for you to be able to understand those things and shift, right? To, de to deconstruct the things that are good, deconstruct the things that are bad. That's right. And now how do you come out of that as a whole person? That's right. I'm thinking about yourself anew. So I think that that's major. So I definitely wanted to highlight that and highlight your book. We are coming to a close, Doc. 
So one last thing I would love for you to do, we do on the show, we have all our guests thank a black teacher or thank some black teachers before they leave here. So I would love to give you the spotlight and the opportunity to do that right now. Oh my goodness. Yes. So all the major mentors, I want to thank Amma Mazama. I want to thank Dr. Baba Akinyilu Moja. I want to thank Marcia Sutherland. I want to thank Janet Davison. I want to thank so many people that have poured into me. Um, and that I hope that I can do the same um, to everyone that is out there. I am not alone in this. We do not come into this world alone. Um, there is so much support. And so that was a word of encouragement that if you're educating yourself, you're not the only one. And if you are educating others, you're not the only one. So in community, we go forward. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Flannery, for visiting us today on Building a Black Educator Pipeline. So this is a show that is hosted by the Center for Black Educated Development with the help of our partners at Brightbeam. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Thank you to all my co-conspirators out there for listening today. And we will see you here next time, everybody. Peace. <laughs>